If you have a copy of the Bible, please turn to our New Testament reading, James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. And as you're finding that, let me remind you of some ancient history. Uh, Last May and June, I began preaching through the book of James. And the plan was that I would finish it by the end of the summer. But the best laid plans of mice and men, and in July, I got sick and ended up, as some of you know, in the hospital. And so we weren't able to finish it last summer. So I started kind of pecking away at it throughout the year when I could. And it ended up that we did chapter two in November and chapter three in January and chapter four in February. And then we got to Lent and so we shifted around. So the plan this summer is that I don't get sick and that um, we finish the book, which is the last chapter, chapter five, we finish it. Um, over the course of June and July because I'll be gone some on vacation. Now, I say all that just to say that um, it's kind of a massive shift of gears, what we've been preaching on, and then suddenly this summer, um, weep and howl, you rich, because uh, bad things are coming your way. So um, I didn't just pick this because I was really concerned about Keith and how he was handling his money. Um, No, I, I just started back up where we were. And so, the interesting thing about this passage is that it's the most intense warning against careless luxury anywhere in the whole Bible. And I was struck as we listened to it, it's quite like your flesh is going to be eaten. I mean, it's hardcore. And at the end of it, all of us said, thanks be to God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing. What does it mean for Christians to hear a passage like that and at the end of it to thank God for it? And that's what, that's what I hope we can find this morning. I'm freezing. Is anybody else freezing? Keith. Now, Keith's in charge of the thermostat. So f- Keith is the, oh, there is a particular woman in the back right corner saying, turn it colder. But I won't tell you that was saying that to me. Keith, Keith is our interim associate rector, which means he's in charge of the thermostat. So any of your concerns, um, I, I'll give you his phone number and you can pass them on. Okay, let's cut right to the chase. I, I hope you found James chapter 5 by now. In James chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, we get this unapologetic, no-holds-barred condemnation of the rich. Look at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And then what he does, that's verse 1, in the rest of these verses, verses 2 through 6, he identifies three ways that this particular group of wealthy people are misusing their money. Three economic sins followed by something that is totally mind-boggling. Now, the first economic sin this group of wealthy people have done is they are hoarding their wealth. That's verses 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Three quick picturesque images. Rotting riches, moth-eaten garments, gold that's corroded. This is a poetic way of saying you're hoarding it and, and it's not getting used at all. It's not even being touched. It's getting destroyed. You're such a hoarder. And then he goes on, and their corrosion, 
will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. So throughout the book of James, God is generous. He's a giver. You get to chapter five, there's a group of people who aren't like God. They're not generous. In James chapter one, verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously without finding, that's what God is like. Chapter five, there's a group of people got stuff they don't even use. They got so much stuff. This is so different from who God is that you're in trouble. James chapter one, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God, from the father of lights in whom there's no shifting of shadow. God gives gifts. You've got this group of wealthy people who hoard their treasures. James chapter four, verse six. God opposes the proud, but gives grace. To the humble. Over and over in James's letter, God gives generously. If you don't learn to be like him, you get to chapter five and you're in trouble. Now, that's the first sin of this group. The second sin comes up in verse four. In James chapter five, verse four, we see that this group of wealthy people are cheating day laborers. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So just like with the hoarding, the fact that here they are building wealth by exploiting the poor. And God knows, not just any God knows, not the God who's a generous giver of grace knows, but the God who is the Lord of hosts, which technically means there's an army coming with him. Hosts there is a warfare image. The God who knows about you growing wealthy through mechanisms that cause others to grow less wealthy is coming for you with an army. And third, in verse 5, we see the third economic sin of this group of people. James 5, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So in verses 2 to 3, their economic sin is hoarding their wealth instead of giving generously. In in verse 4, their economic sin is that they're cheating workers instead of treating them with mercy and compassion. And then in verse 5, they are living in extravagant self-luxury. And then we get to verse 6. And the final condemnation of this group of wealthy people, and it is the worst thing of all, by far. Notice verse 6. You have condemned. So, right, this is interesting, right? In verses one, two, three, four, and five, they are, James is condemning them. You're condemned by the way you've used money. And now he says, the worst thing you've done, though, is that you condemned. And who did they condemn? You have murdered the, literally, the righteous one who doesn't resist you. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He's talking to the group of people responsible for the murder of Jesus. 
And suddenly we realize it when we get here in chapter 5. We realize who James is talking about. The people hoarding wealth, cheating workers, living in self-indulgent luxury are the Jerusalem elite, the Sadducees, the chief priests who live in fine houses and grow fat on the proceeds of pilgrimages and sacrifices brought by faithful Jews to the temple. And when Jesus arrived in the temple, in that fateful time, Right before he was killed, he cleansed the temple and he messed with their business empire. And they reacted the way people always react when their idol is uncovered. They reacted with violence. But that wasn't the end of the story. We know. We just came out of the Easter season. You can't eliminate Jesus. Countless tyrants have discovered this down through the ages. God raised Jesus from the dead. So here's here's the kind of flow of events. Jesus goes into the temple. Jerusalem elite are committing these sins. He exposes that. He challenges that. They in turn kill him and say to him, basically, right, you mess with us, your mama. We're in control. We got the power. But then God says, raises Jesus from the dead. No, Jesus is right. That's what, the resurrection of Jesus is God saying to them, he's right, you're wrong. The way he says to handle money is right. The way you've been handling money is wrong. Now, what does this have to do with us today? All right, there are three ways that we need to always handle scripture. We need to look at it and say, what does it mean? We need to look through it and say, okay, if that's what this means, now look at all these complicated things going in my world today. If I look out at my world today and the stuff going on in the headlines and the stuff going on in our city, if I look at it through the lens of this passage, what does it show me about the world today? James is a wisdom book. In the Bible, wisdom is about how to navigate life in a complicated world successfully. So you look through this passage in a world filled with wealth, filled with power, filled with idols, and we're supposed to let this be the way we look at all of that. And the third way, so we look at the Bible, we look through the Bible, and the third way is we need to look into the Bible as a mirror and let it reflect back to us what our lives look like standing up against this. What does it reveal to us about our own lives? So let's do that with this passage. And, and I think the first thing, when, when we take this passage and we're not only looking at it, but in it and through it, then, then what we see is that of all the gods we're tempted to serve, money is the most seductive. Money is the most powerful idol. Jesus told us this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He said, nobody can serve two masters. You will either hate the first and love the second, or you'll be devoted to the first and despise the second. And just in case we're going to leave it at the kind of abstract realm, do you know what the next sentence is? You cannot serve both God and mammon, money. Do you hear what our Lord is teaching us? Whenever he talks about the the struggle of, of, of having two gods, he bottom lines it with him or money. It's as if he's riffing the Ten Commandments. Do you know? The first commandment of the Ten is, you shall have no other gods but me. 
The first commandment is no other gods because that's our fundamental temptation. The root temptation for humans is to worship another god. Why? Because to be human is to worship. God made us to worship. You can't not worship. It's not who worships and who doesn't. That's not, what, that's not a way to look at the world. Everybody's worshiping something. Everybody's giving their allegiance to something or some idea or some philosophy or some kind of uh, program or some kind of issue. Humans are created with an irresistible, unavoidable, unkillable drive to give our allegiance to something or someone. Now, we've got a problem because we live in the modern world, and when we hear things like other gods and idolatry, we think that's something that ancient pagans did. This is something that conjures up in our minds primitive people bowing down in front of statues, shrines built around an image that people make, and then they sacrifice to it, and they worship it. And because we think that, we let ourselves off the hook. But at the end of the day, how is our society any different? Don't we have shrines? What about our office towers and our spas and our studios and our gyms and our stadiums and our shopping malls and our car dealerships and our universities? Aren't these things that we make massive sacrifices for thinking that if we pay the price, they will protect us from the vicissitudes of life? How is it any different than to chalk up tens of thousands of dollars in debt for a university education thinking that it will help you make it? How is that any different than giving like some sacrifice to some shrine hoping that when the rain comes, you won't be flooded into bankruptcy? These are shrines where sacrifices are made in order to procure the blessings of life. And just because it doesn't look like other people, we think we're actually not participating in that same kind of mechanism. What are the gods of beauty and power and money and achievement, but things that have assumed these mythic proportions in our lives? And this is the point of James chapter 5. Of all the gods we are tempted to serve, money is the most seductive. One of the most seductive. It's one of the most powerful idols in our life. Remember Jesus in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, said nobody can serve two masters. Either you will hate the first and love the second or be devoted to the first and despise the second. You can't serve both God and wealth. Idolatry is the ultimate sin that puts us outside the community of faith. And the thing with idolatry is It's sneaky. Idols are dangerous. They steal our love and our trust and our service from God and they fly under the radar. And we have all kinds of sophisticated ways of not knowing that they're at work in our life. So Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, warned his followers to look out for all sorts of greed because greed is sneaky. It gets into you before you even know it. He tells a parable about a farmer destroyed in the middle of his prosperity because he hoarded wealth and failed to be rich toward God. 
In chapter 16, he tells about a rich man sent to hell because he failed to let go of his wealth for the sake of his neighbor. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about eternal judgment declared based on your willingness to share with those in need. Now, all of these parables point in the same direction. Money wants worship. Money wants your worship. But every bit of ourselves that we give to our stuff, we're snatching away from the true king. And what's the price? What's the cost of economic idolatry? Well, listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. People who want to be rich, want to be rich, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and dangerous lusts which drown people in devastation and destruction. Now, do you believe that? Or do you think you can love money and God? Do you think you can want money and avoid that? Our Lord goes even further. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, he says, the love of money, the love of it. Now, this is nuanced, right? Because all through the Bible, sometimes God blesses people with money. We're talking about the, your relationship to money, not if you've got it or don't have it. The love of money. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 is the root of all kinds of evil that has caused some people to wander from the faith and impale themselves painfully with many griefs. Teenagers, as you're deciding on a career, don't chase money. Don't do that. Now, some careers produce lots of money and some don't. But if you're going to a career for the love of money, you are in trouble. What God is telling us here is that loving money wounds you. It wounds you. It woos you away from the faith, and it will well up into all sorts of evil. That's, the, that's what's going on in James chapter 5. I mean, see, if you only look at James chapter 5 and then look through it at the world, at all those greedy people, if you never turn it into a mirror on yourself, you sit there and think, I could never have murdered Jesus. Who would murder Jesus? He was so kind. He was so gentle. What does it actually take for a person to have done that to Jesus? And James tells us, you know what it took? The love of money. It did it to the chief priest, and it will do it to you. That's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to look at these chief priests as people who are just born bad. We're supposed to say, man, I can never imagine killing Jesus. Whoa, the love of money could make me into the, kind, the person who would say, crucify him. Now, remember I said a little bit earlier a, a thing with idols, idols have two characteristics. One, they're invisible, and two, they're violent when they're exposed. So if idols do fly under the radar, especially in our sophisticated modern world where we don't worship idols, 
If idols fly under the radar and they're sneaky and they're seductive and they get inside and we don't even recognize it, then one of the important things to do is to scour scripture and to find the tools in scripture for spotting an idol so that we can see if it's actually in our own lives. Four ways to identify if you are worshiping an idol. And I get these from Tim Keller in a book he wrote called Counterfeit Gods. Four ways that he says scripture teaches us, and I think he's right, to see idols in our life. The first he got from an Anglican, William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Temple famously said, your religion, you want to find what you worship. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts turn to when nothing else is demanding your attention. What do you accidentally daydream about when nothing else is taking up mental space? Do you develop potential scenarios about career advancement? Something you can buy like a dream home? A new kitchen, a car, a vacation. Lovers of money are those who find themselves daydreaming about, fantasizing about how they can make money, how new possessions they can buy. It's those, look, you don't have to be rich to be in the grip of, of the idol of money. The poor are just as gripped by this idol as the middle class and the wealthy. Do you find yourself daydreaming in jealousy and envy of those who have more than you do? An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you give it your passion and energy and your emotions and your resources without a second thought. A second way to discern your heart's true love, don't just look at what you do with your solitude, but look at how you spend your money, the money you do have. Now, Jesus told us this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Where your treasure is, do any of you know this verse? There your heart is also. So look at what you've spent your money on. Your money flows effortlessly toward your heart's desire. Your heart's desire is the gravitational pull for your money. In fact, the mark of an idol is that you spend too much money on it. A third test to figure out, to uncover the idols in your life, is to look at your uncontrollable emotions. Remember I said there's two characteristics of idols. They're invisible and they're violent. We learn this in the book of Acts when Paul uncovers the idolatry of the of the city of Ephesus, and they try to kill him. That's what, that's what idols do when they get uncovered. They're violent. So look at your violent emotions. If you get uncontrollably angry, is there something below it that you must have at all costs? Do the same thing with the violent emotion of fear. Or the violent emotion of despair. And ask yourself, am I so afraid or so despairing because there's something in me that I want more than anything else that's being threatened? 
Fourthly, a fourth kind of thing we learn from the scriptures about uncovering idols in our lives is in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. I referenced it earlier. Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. You're probably really good at recognizing the greed of people who get on your nerves. But there's all kinds of greed. There's the greed that ticks you off, and there's the greed that you kind of pet, like a little, like, lap dog. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What is greed? When you read the whole context, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. When you read the whole context of Luke chapter 11 and Luke chapter 12, you see that for Jesus, greed is not only the love of money, it's also excessive anxiety about money. If money is your God, it controls you through worry and desire. So let's take James chapter 5 and not just look through it at those chief priests that murdered Jesus or at the greedy capitalist. Let's not just look through it in some popular political movement of the day at people out there. Let's let this passage be a mirror and look into our own hearts. Now here's the good news. The good news is if you've either just discovered or long known that you love money. The good news is Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of that wicked sin. And secondly, to deliver you from the grip of that idol. That's the good news. If you have a copy of the Bible, turn to this passage I keep talking about, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, this most famous sermon Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount, and let's notice what he says. Let's pay close attention to what he says about money. Matthew chapter 6, and and earlier I only quoted verse 21, but let me quote, let's read verse 20 and 21. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, earlier I quoted Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And I said, look, just look at what you're spending a lot of your money on, all right? That's your, that's your treasure. I've been saying this a lot lately, though. Remember, that's a proverb. A proverb is when there's a whole lot of wisdom condensed into an easy-to-remember little statement. Proverbs are meant to be treated like jewels. They're meant to be looked at, and you get something out of them, and then you turn them, and you see something else in them. So on the one hand, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, is telling us that your treasures are like a barometer. Um, They're like a a thermometer. They tell you where where your heart is. But when you read it with verse 20... It's not that your money reveals your treasure, reveals where your heart is. It's that what you do with your money changes your heart. See, verse 20, Jesus says, do this with your money and your heart will get to God. So it's not only that your money and your possessions are a thermometer that show us about your life. 
It's also that the way you use your money can counteract your idolatry. If you will lay your treasure up in the right way, your heart will get to God too. Your money follows your heart, but the good news is your heart will follow your money. Jesus stands before us here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, like a doctor diagnosing, showing us that our hearts are in the grip of money. But then he stands there like a doctor prescribing the way to fix it, which is what we saw all through the book of James, generous giving. You don't wait to get generous and then give. You give your way into generosity. Generous giving jams a spoke into the relentless wheel of idolatry. It casts money down from the throne of our heart. Look, if your heart is gripped by money, the way to kick money off the throne of your heart is to generously give. When we release our grip on money, we free up our hearts for worship and we free up our hands for work in God's kingdom. When we give, it's this mechanism that God generously gives his spirit to inhabit our giving so that it reshapes our hearts and our lives into the image of a generous God. Through generous giving, God changes hearts. From 1968 until 2001, the per capita income in the United States doubled. And in that same period, the last three decades of the 20th century, the average Christians giving in America fell from 3.1 to 2.66%. In other words, as Americans' income doubled, their giving declined, which is an indicator of a sneaky idol worming its way in. Now, part of the reason that's so tragic is because of what that leads to. And that's what James chapter 5 is trying to get us to recognize. You can't have a secret affair with money and it not wreck your life eventually. Now, the good news is Christ died to forgive us. And to deliver us. And when we give back to God from the good gifts he has given us, he will wrench our economic practices away from the idols to the one true king. Generosity with money is one of Jesus' tools for healing our hearts. If we want our hearts to reside in God's kingdom rather than in idolatrous temples, we must learn to give generously. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray.